Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast, episode 58. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com. I'm Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. And our very special guest is Christopher Clark. Chris is an FCA regulated investment manager and trading systems designer. Chris was formerly an executive director at Goldman Sachs, a senior trader at Deutsche Bank and HSBC, Bankers Trust and NatWest Markets. And so welcome to the show, Chris. Great to have you on. Yeah, lovely. Thank you very thanks. Thanks very much for inviting me on. It's a real pleasure to be here. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you on the show, Chris. So um, tell us a bit about your journey into the financial markets, because you've got um, your you started at Goldman Sachs. I mean, that's just uh, quite an amazing place to start, really, isn't it? Um, it would have been if that be accurate. Um, I, oh, I actually I really? I actually started at HSBC. Oh, did you? Um, right. And I think what you, I think what you were politely saying there is, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit of a dinosaur because that was, uh, that was in the 1980s. So I, I went straight into the financial markets from university in 1989, and I joined the HSBC uh, graduate training program. Um, and that is actually from that point, a couple of years later, that I went, I went to Goldman Sachs. But yeah, it was HSBC where I started. And but that must have been an amazing shift in career. I mean, it must have been just quite incredible going from say, you know, Formula First in terms of you know racing up into Formula One. Yeah, it it, it was, and uh, you know, there was quite a story attached to it because um, you know I had a real taste for for the trading side of things, and um, I found a person at Goldman whilst I was at HSBC because I wasn't I was still on a you know a, a lowly graduate trainee sort of getting sandwiches in and, and getting abused the usual stuff and um and I I rooted out the person that I wanted to uh, talk to at Goldman and sort of uh, rang him up and, and and told him he needed to talk to me and so he did and we sort of had a chat about life about football uh, and everything possible that was not related to financial markets. Um, and at the end of that, he offered me a job. Um, Brilliant. And after I got there, a month later, they offered me um, the, the biggest trading seat in Goldman Sachs globally. So that was quite, quite a remarkable <laughs> journey. And I have to pinch myself sometimes to, uh, to understand how that all happened. But it did. Chris, what did you read at university? Um, I did uh, accounting and finance. And did, and did you do that with a view to getting into the city or, or and did you have a preset ambition to, to go into like a dealing room environment? No, I didn't. I had a, um, I was going to be a, a chartered accountant is what I wanted to be. Um, uh, but I, uh, a, a good friend of mine at university on my, on my course, her boyfriend at the time, who was about 10 years older than her, uh, was trading in the city. Uh, he was called Will. He was an Essex boy. And uh, I remember having long conversations with him, and I thought, oh, this sounds like a really interesting career to pursue. So from from that point on, I was sold. And I went down for an interview, and um, I still remember it. And I, I and the second I walked onto the trading floor at HSBC, um, that was it. And the bug has never left me since that day, if I'm honest. So you were literally at the coalface trading in the old days. And many people are going to ask and want to know, how's the, how have things changed since then? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's 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 a very good question. I mean, you know, and we could talk about it um, for hours. Um, you know, being much more succinct than that. You know, I would say many aspects of it haven't changed. Um, I think a lot of people like to paint a picture of the fact that it has changed dramatically. But I think markets are markets, and of course, technology moves on, and the way we access markets moves on. 
But I think fundamentally, at the end, at the end of the day, um, it's you know it's still pretty similar. It, it doesn't look the same, but what goes on behind the scenes is the same. Um, and and really, it's just the technology that's changed things. We we had a guest on. His name's David Bowers, great guest, really fantastic. And he was in his words, he says, "I'm a." I'm a baby when it comes to the financial markets. He's never seen a bear market. It's like some people have never seen a bear market. Can you believe that? Um, no, I, I, uh, you know, it is, you know, it, it is a difficult one to digest, isn't it? And um, obviously, you know, I think one of the important things about trading markets is the fact that um, you have this bias, which, um, which like attaches cognitively to you. And I think it's based on the first experience of a market you have. There is a name for it, and that name escapes me at the moment. It's obviously not recency bias, but it's is that there is a proper name for it. And I came into a, a market that that was in a sort of 25, 30% downtrend for the first two or three years, which was the dollar against the Deutsche Mark exchange rate. And I think, you know, in, in many ways it can hinder you that that bias that you first come into because you have to understand that markets can go up and down and sideways and, and not to be too heavily biased. But it is a real concern, yes, at the moment, particularly in the equity markets, that any um, any guy in the city, you know, probably under the age of 28 and under has probably never seen an environment whereby a stock market can actually go down and no one will come in to support it. People who work in the city, whilst they did get paid a lot, they worked tremendous hours and put a lot of work and love into what they do. And you, you've taken that beyond what you did in the banks because you, you then studied trend following and algorithmic trading. Can you tell us a bit about your work in that field? Yeah, sure. I mean, <clears throat> I mean, it was it was partly due to what what I'd seen when I was working in the banks, in uh, particularly at Goldman, in that there were traders, proprietary traders I'm talking about here, who there were guys who made a lot of money and there were guys who didn't and um and there were customers or or you know clients of the bank that traded with us that made a lot of money and those that didn't and um you know you begin to see a pattern of how the big money is made um and that's the sort of lesson i learned and i was also very fascinated with numbers when i was there and systems and you know what if i did this and what if i applied this kind of systematic approach to it so when i left banking i really picked up on that and wanted to combine the idea of sitting on big positions for a very, very long period of time um, with, with, you know, with systems and, you know, having dealt with a number of the trend following funds that have been around since the 70s and 80s at whilst in the banks, um, you know, I sort of pursued the trend following approach, which made a lot of sense to me. And, you know, similarly, I mean, one could argue that it's what, what, what we describe as a long volatility strategy as well. You know, sort of you're spending lots of small amounts of money looking for a big move. And I'd also seen whilst at NatWest Markets that um, one or two guys on the options desk very much pursued that strategy of buying volatility and a lot of it expiring worthless. But the ones that made money paid off hugely. And, you know, that was also something that stayed with me to develop strategies later on in my career. Chris, for the benefit of uh, people who may not be entirely familiar with the concept, could you give a kind of a layman's guide to to what you what you call trend following as a strategy? Uh, yeah, and, and, and again, and I know it's a, a thing you say in interviews. Oh, that's a good question, but that, but that is a that is a particularly poignant question because I think you know what I what I see as trend following has actually changed over the last ten years. Um, and you know what what it really comes down to for me is the fact that 
Um, you are putting on a lot of bets, for want of a better word, in the financial markets, and you are spending a very small amount of money in order to place those bets and in the full acceptance that um, that most of them will, will uh, cash in worthless. But when you capture a big move that the uh, trend following system enables you to stay in that in that move for an extended period of time, you know, and I, I, I you know, in the, in the, in the, in the career I've had in trend following, I mean, I've had, you know, there were certain positions I had on for in excess of five years and running the same system, I was stopped out of certain positions within 24 hours. And I think that kind of gives a, um, you know, an indication of what I'm talking about that, you know, once, once you get into something and, and you're right, then the system keeps you in. And also for me, it was a, a very, very, good way and you know trend following itself is a very good way to take the emotion out of trading and to blame the system when you get it wrong and and bath, bath in all the glory when you get it right you know? so <laughs> it sort Absolutely. of it takes the emotion out of it which is is always a good thing and the ego which is obviously something that young men in the city have have a lot of and you know it doesn't make you money so I, I was no exception and needed to have that removed so i bluntly had it removed by following a, a trend following system although the markets themselves or the the system hasn't changed or probably doesn't need to the market now is uh, is occupied by the central banks printing money and some people say holding the market up um and at the other end of that you've got the proliferation of very, very short-term traders where holding a position for microseconds. Um, do you see any of that as changing the landscape of, of how trading operates now, or do you think it's all still the same? Um, I think it, it opens up a new time frame window, which is, you know, sub five seconds and, you know, and, and then sub half a second. And yes, there is a market there now that did not exist 10, 15, well, 20, 15, 20 years ago. Um, so, yeah, you know, the technology has enabled a, a, a breed of traders to come along who can trade at a sub second level. Um, but the point is that, you know, if if there is a global shortage of coffee or the corn crop gets destroyed, then typically these markets will go up, you know, anywhere between 25 and a thousand percent. And what happens in the sub five second time frame or whether or not someone is exploiting my entry or exit into that position for you know a a, a fraction of a percent when I'm looking to make six hundred percent on a trade over three years or something, for example, yeah, it makes no difference whatsoever. And 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 one thing I said to somebody recently was was very simply this: that if you traded the pound against the U.S. dollar, you know, cable as it's uh, well known, um, and you were trading in the 1970s, and and you bought, you know, 10 pounds or 10 million pounds at 70 and sold them at 80, um, then 40 years later, if you did the same trade, the P&L is the same, the buy level is the same, the X. I mean, you know, nothing has changed whatsoever about the mechanics of that trade apart from the execution platform that you may use and the ability to get in easier, get in and out easier and, and execute that trade from home as opposed to sitting in a bank. So yeah. I do think a lot of people like to paint a picture of markets having dramatically changed because I think it suits their own interests to do that and to sell their technology and sell their ideas on. But fundamentally, you know, I don't think a lot of things have changed. It's funny you say that because I was at a, a technical analysis conference 
about well, probably about six months ago now that Paul said he was going to attend, but mysteriously failed to arrive at. So I had to go on my own. <laughs> uh, but I think it was Van Tharp who was the, uh-huh. the speaker. Who I don't really know the name that well, but I think he's a bit of a name in the in the industry. Absolutely. And, is, and I yeah. managed I managed to stick my paw up at the end to, to get a, the first question. And my question to him was, you know, has you know, just as what Paul was talking about a few minutes ago, the role of central banks, uh, in particular, sort of price setters uh, and sort of do- pre- predominant uh, traders in the marketplace with ZERP and QE and all that kind of nonsense, has that kind of destroyed the, the potential for trend followers to make money? And his response was simply, well, it's a narrative, i.e. implying that, well, yeah, it's a story, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's a valid story, which I just thought was really interesting. No, no, and it is it is very interesting, and I, you know I think it would be naive to sort of sit here and suggest that the what happened after two thousand and eight has made particularly trend following um, uh, a an easier job. I mean it hasn't, um, but you know there are two things I would add to that. Number one is that you've got two two distinct sets of markets, right? You've got financials, which include currencies, interest rates, and uh, stock markets, but then on the other side of that, you've got commodities now. Trend following as a strategy and as a system was never intended to even be used on financials per se. And so therefore, what I would be more interested in is, has the landscape and the return profile of trend following commodities changed in the last 50 years? And the answer is no, it hasn't. Has it changed with regards to the financials? Yes, it has. And, you know, the suppression of volatility by central banks is obviously going to reduce the ability of a a long volatility strategy to make money. and this is a period in history when it's difficult. And if we look back one or 200 years, there have been other periods in history when it's been difficult as well. And, you know, the, the lesson I guess I've learned coming out of this sort of last five to 10 year period is, is very simply that, um, you know, I think running more than one strategy or having a portfolio of different strategies or all with a, a long term history of success is the way forward without putting all your eggs in one basket necessarily. The thing that I would uh, stress, uh, and, and I consider myself extremely fortunate to have met, I think both of you guys probably around 20 years ago was when we probably started out sort of getting to know each other, was when I met with Chris, it's the turn of the millennium. Um, yeah. It was a revelation, really, for me to meet someone who said, to be absolutely honest, it doesn't even matter if I don't know what I'm trading. In other words, if you, know, if you imagine a sort of a, a standard sort of Bloomberg terminal, Bloomberg screen, you could basically blank out the identifier of what the market actually is. You just see the chart. And to hear someone say, to be honest, it doesn't really matter because uh, I'm trading the, the market, I'm trading the instrument, but I don't need to know what the instrument is. And as someone sort of like me previously schooled in, quote, fundamentals, unquote, that sounded like heresy at the time. <laughs> yeah, very much so. Um, the way I like to think of it is that trading is about having an edge and the same principle is applied in the casino. And a casino has an edge on a roulette table. Um, so therefore, a casino fills the floor with as many roulette tables as it possibly can, uh, because each table has an edge. So if my system has an edge on a give on, or on a market, and I think that edge is applicable across all markets, then, you know, each market is a roulette table. Um, and I want to trade as many markets as I can to exploit the edge. You know, um, as for the studying of the individual roulette table, 
as to why it landed on red or black, you know, um, personally, I couldn't give a, give a damn um, about, you know, the details of the roulette table. All I know is that I have an edge on that table and I want to play on it. Um, and I don't really need to know anything else about that table other than the fact that, you know, I have an edge on it. And so therefore, you know, it, it detracts from all ability to care about what you're trading, as long as there are certain other things that are importantly uh, fulfilled, such as them, the market being liquid enough to get in and out of and you understanding when it opens, when it closes and, and all the little intricacies that might be associated with that market. But other than that, you don't need to know anything about it at all. And um, I would I would say that knowing too much about an individual market is actually a hindrance uh, to trading it. And also, um, it also uh, shines light on the brutal fact that none of us have any clue where any market's ever going in the future anyway. So why would you want to be an expert on any particular market? Credit, credit where credit's due, because I think you were the first person to put me on to a book called 13 Against the Bank. Do you want to, uh, do you want to mention that briefly? Yeah, I mean, it, you know, there's a couple of them really, isn't there? There is Bringing, bringing Down the House, um, which... Um, was a film that was, uh, which sorry, was a book which was later turned into a film called Twenty One with with Kevin Spacey. I'm not sure if we can mention his name anymore for all the uh, little darlings out there who may be offended. But there was a film. <laughs> <laughs> there was a there was a great film, uh, and I was fortunate enough to meet some of the um, people who were actually uh, members of the um, MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology Blackjack Club, who are basically a bunch of guys who in the 90s went to Las Vegas uh, and played a very simple system um, and won several million dollars before they were found out by the casinos and, and banned for life. So that was one example. And that was running a system that's very similar to the to, to, to a trend following system. But also, secondly, there was obviously the, the bank, uh, the book that you alluded to, 13 Against the Bank. And there's some there is some question as to whether it was a uh, a true book or, or not a true book, but the, but the principle was very accurate again, which was, you know, if you rigorously apply a systematic approach to roulette and you play with just one zero on the table, then it is possible to make big money. Um, and certainly the true, the true bit is absolutely uh, limit your losses. Um, you're then relying on a string of, of given outcomes to produce a, a large amount of money. Um, so, you know, very, very interesting stuff. And, and again, uh, how weird that both of those books, both those films, whatever, or the, the one film or the one book, uh, when you read the actual rules of the systems being used, that they are almost identical to any good trend following system in that you bet small um, and you look for, you know, unexpected outcomes when you make big, basically. You were saying, Tim, about how you, you know, you found it heresy. I remember in the early 90s or just around 94, 95, when I was teaching at the City University Business School. And uh, I was explaining about this, you know, 13 against the bank and how you don't need to use, uh, you know, any fundamentals. And I'd have like a wall of economists, like wanting to basically tear, me, tear me, my body limb from limb because I was saying that this is how it works. I'm not, I'm but, not sure a wall is the precise collective terminology for a group of economists, but I think we should skirt over that. But yeah, but... <laughs> But by the end, by the, by the end of it, they were calling the markets, and they they were 
dare I say, even more technical than me. Um, yeah. it's quite amazing. It's like one, once they they turn, they they really turn. So it's it's yeah. it's fascinating. I think also, by the way, Chris, since we've had Rory Sutherland on, we used to have a clean rating on this podcast, but we had to we had to drop it because of Rory Sutherland, and we haven't actually made much use of it since. But I'm thinking that we can well, fucking we, start now then. <laughs> Ah, <laughs> oh, the bar has been set. <laughs> right, but I was about to say we need to talk about Brexit because there's so much that's happened, and I'm sure, I'm sure I just wanted to give you that you know heads up that you can use some fruity language because you were about to a moment ago and you pulled back. So I thought, well, yes. I just let let you know you can let rip. Yeah, well, no, I'm 51 and civilized now. I'm not a not a spot foreign exchange dealer. Otherwise, the expletives <laughs> would have been uh, forthcoming. So, uh, but I'll, I'll bear that in mind. And certainly, if we're going to move on to the topic of Brexit at any point, expect one or two. Yes, <laughs> I think I think we're there already because I mean we're recording this on a on a Tuesday, Tuesday 21st of May, and Theresa May has basically just told the whole country to go fuck itself. Yeah, I, I just can't believe that. I can't believe the news. I really can't. It just literally just before we came on air on the podcast, like you say, tell tell us about your take on it, Chris. Um, yeah, I mean, more amazing still is the reaction of the financial markets to it. Uh, you know, in that people actually would buy the pound um, up. You know, the biggest sort of you know five minute move up in the pound in in months on on the back of uh, Theresa May basically saying, you know, I'm I'm going to take my deal which is in no way Brexit, um, which I've tried to kid the British people that it's Brexit. And then I'm going to water it down and stamp all over it and make it even worse. And, and then, then set bring, fire to it. And then set fire to it and then bring it back to the, uh, to, the, to the House of Commons and to the British people, to which the algorithms in the market go, oh, that must mean Brexit won't happen then. So watching them sort of joyfully buy sterling uh, before it then collapsed all the way back down again was was mildly humorous, I have to say. But, you know, on a serious note, I mean, I think, you know, the news today and and, and obviously for those people listening and this, you know, at some point in the future, the news is basically Theresa May is going to give it one last shot in June to bring her dead deal to, to the House of Commons. Um, the deal just got even more insulting to everybody who who supports the exit from the European Union because, it's it's now not Brexit, but probably even worse than staying in the. It's like European Union membership on acid. What she's suggesting today, and it's an insult to anyone with a brain cell, to be frank. Tim, you must be desperate to say something about it. No, not really. I mean, I think Chris has Chris has got the point across. So there's no need there's no need to sort of over egg over egg the national trajectory pudding here. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's um you know the whole thing has been farcical, really, and um I I, I think that um. I think we're on the verge of a, an absolute volcano eruption in British politics. And, you know, I, I really woke up to this fact in, in early, um, early April that I could now sense something coming along here, uh, which is really, I mean, I'm not just talking about, you know, another referendum or we're going to do this or we, I mean, this, this is quite possibly the, you know, the end of the system that has served at this country for many hundreds of years. And I think that, um, you know, the Conservatives and Labour as being a sort of two-party system, that's over, that's finished. And I think we've only got to look to America and see what happened with Trump to understand what's coming in this country. And a lone wolf or someone who's not even backed by enough people to form a cabinet is a distinct possibility for Prime Minister. And obviously the only person to do that is Nigel Farage. And 
you know, also, I don't know if you guys are also aware, but news today is that the EU are now going to investigate Nigel Farage over Aaron Banks' payment to him. And Gordon Brown has been on the on the TV this week, you know, talking about how for the for the for the sake of democracy, we must get rid of people like Nigel Farage, which, you know, it's what? such it's such hypocrisy that it doesn't even it's not even worth a comment. Um, but, you know, you know now that the authorities and the establishment are now going to start uh, investigating the Brexit party or going to start, you know, throwing mud at it. You know they are now concerned and they now realise the game is up. And, you know, I, I personally have have money on the fact that Nigel Farage will be prime minister of this country by the end of the year. It's a long shot, but I think it's a, a bet worth taking. And at the very least, I expect a complete a complete bombshell to, to hit British politics in the next 12 months, even if it isn't that one itself. But, you know, people have had enough and the game is over. We Do you had, still think uh, Brexit can happen, though? Brexit is going to happen. End of story. Um, you know, uh, it, it, you know, the, the thing about the, the British people is, you know, they're they're quite easy to push around quite a lot, but there becomes a point when when the British people then become one of the nastiest races of people in the world when they get pushed to a certain point. And um, I think, you know, Theresa May found that out uh, to her own detriment in the last couple of years when she, if you remember, she had indicated something about, you know, she she had said something pretty nasty about old people or, or in whether they should pay more for X, you know, and they revolted against her. And I think you're going to see the same thing here is that, you know, this is a democratic country. We had a democratic vote. The current government are uh, ignoring democracy. That will not wash with the vast majority of this pe- uh, people in this country. And I honestly believe if you put a vote to the country tomorrow, that that 55 to 60 percent of them would vote to leave the European Union without a deal. I think that's where we currently are at the moment. There are a lot of very angry people in this country and they will come out to vote in any new election. And the vast majority of them will be on the Brexit side of things. Actually, leaving to... without a deal is not such a bad thing, though, is it? Well, leaving without a deal is what we've always wanted. I mean, I, I've campaigned for Brexit for 19 years. Um, it began uh, it began in late 1999 um, when I was involved in a an argument with the senior economists at Deutsche Bank globally about the fact that the European Union, the introduction of the euro that year was was going to end in tears at some point. And, you know, whether that was going to be in my lifetime or not, I don't know, but it was always going to end in tears. And from that point on, you know, it was really apparent that, that Britain needed to escape from the European Union. And, and the, the thing that makes me more angry than anything else is about just what a great deal it would be for us to have a no deal. And all I hear on the media is crashing out of the European Union, or they we're we're all agreed that a no deal is a place we uh, a thing we don't want. Actually, it's what most Brexiteers want because it's what will be in the best interests of this country to have a no deal. We had uh, Dominic Frisby. I don't, do you know Dominic, uh, Chris? Yes, I do. Yes. Um, we had Dominic on the the podcast a few months ago, uh, and he's for anyone that's unfamiliar with the name, he's a, a financial columnist but also a stand-up comedian very very funny guy and uh i'm just looking at a tweet of his from yesterday when he said watching the establishment try and take down the brexit party is like watching the music and publishing industries in 2000 floundering in the face of internet created competition tory and labor are going the same way as our price (laughs) 
<laughs> actually, actually, I was quite fond of our prize records. So was so I. That's not, that's not a good analogy for me because I'm not. And HMV, good. I like them. Yeah, ta- ta- Tower Records, HMV, they all. Oh work. yeah, yeah. yeah no, I mean, absolutely, it, 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 it's laughable. Block, to- block, blockbuster. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, um, things change and. You know, politicians are likely to be the last people to cotton on to what's really going on. And, you know, the the problem, particularly with the current mob, and I do include Corbyn in that as well, um, is they're out of touch with the British people. Um, And the only person in this country who is not out of touch with the British people is is Nigel Farage. And, um, you know, he gets it. He understands what people want. The rest of them don't. Cameron never did. I liked David Cameron. I thought he was a good guy. Uh, in many regards, but he, he, you know, just unfortunately due to his background, he, he just wasn't going to be familiar with sort of drinking habits in Sunderland. Do you know what I mean? Um, and you need somebody who, who gets it on all levels, what people are thinking in this country, and nobody in the House of Commons to a man or a woman gets it. And so expect radical change. If you could fix the financial markets, what would you say is currently wrong with them in terms of positions, in terms of the setup, in terms of the risks that we, we're going to see in the future? Um, I, I, you know, there are, there are inherent risks about the creation of asset bubbles via, you know, cheap or easy money. Um, and, you know, that, that road has been well trodden and, and, and I'm sure listeners are, will be familiar with you know, all the risks about quantitative easing, zero interest rates or negative interest rates, creating asset bubbles, and that creates risks for crashes. But, you know, that's not the biggest risk I see at the moment. One of the biggest risks I see in the financial markets at the moment is the the wholesale acceptance by people who should know better of the fact that technology and machine learning and, and artificial intelligence are going to save us all and are going to be the future of financial markets. Um, That I wholeheartedly disagree with and fully accept that I'm probably a sort of, you know, shouting at the sky sort of person when I say that because it's not the accepted view. But, you know, I've watched enough air crash investigation um, documentaries to understand, you know, that this complete reliance on on um, artificial intelligence, machine learning, autopilot, whatever you want to call it, um, is something that is going to end in tears on several occasions. And, you know, the the great sort of argument I have against artificial intelligence is very simple, is that um, making money in the financial markets and intelligence are not correlated on any level. So if intelligence is, is not important in making money, then why would artificial intelligence fare any better than real intelligence? You know, it's about emotion, not intelligence. And, and that cannot be modelled. I don't care what anybody says. Also, if machine learning worked, I mean, why, why is Theresa May still in power? Well, one, one wonders whether she is some kind of robotic machine learned um, artificial. Well, I, I'm not, obviously not artificially intelligent. Um, <laughs> but, you know, uh, yeah, exactly. If machine learning on any level would work, why would any of them be there? But no, I do think it is a concern. And, you know, you look at some of the major banks out there who are now employing these strategies in their wealth management divisions. I believe Morgan Stanley this year or late last year, I've got some kind of fully automated wealth management um, program. And I mean, you know, I think that it is exceedingly dangerous and the human human's ability to be sucked into, oh, you know, this is this is the way it's going to be. And we've got to get our money in that, you know, it's 
it's an accident waiting to happen. I, I really believe that. And, you know, 1987 taught us that. The flash crash in 2010 taught us that. And when it happens, I, I you know, and all the whinging comes along, um, it'll be hard not to sort of say to these people, you know, really, that was pretty, pretty obvious, wasn't it? So do you think that all the positions will say at the same time to either buy or sell, but most most likely sell and there'll, there'll be a big downdraft in the markets? That that's the risk of, of AI. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, that, but also this concept that artificial intelligence is going to, or machine learning in particular, is going to find ways to make money that humans cannot do, or that somehow um, they are going to come up, given the data set they are looking at, with different answers to what we already know to be true. Um, I think give give. Um, a computer with machine learning capabilities and artificial intelligence, all the data that exists ever on financial markets. And I think it will come to the same conclusions about what to do. Um, And the simple fact of the matter is that those conclusions involve investing and trading in a way that most investors won't accept because of the the drawdown and the volatility of returns. So whether a computer is doing it or a human being is doing it, you know, what difference does it make? It'll come to the same conclusion. and, you know, if you could program human emotion um, or if you could reciprocate that in a computer, then you know, I'd be concerned that there were no risks there or that, you know, the future was definitely going to be different. But until I hear a sort of number one album of 12 you know, songs that will still be in remembrance in 100 years time written by a computer, then I refuse to believe that artificial intelligence is the future of financial markets, because both instances, financial markets and, and music are based on more than logic, data, and and the the logical part of the human brain. You're involved in a, a business called Velador. Um, are you able to say, in a, in a very general sense, without going into specifics, what that involves? I, I yeah, I can. I mean, because quite a lot of it's on the record. I mean, obviously, I have to be um, uh, accepting of the fact that anything that's not on the record or not in the public domain, I can't talk about. But um, yes, I can. I can talk about it. And and, and Velador Associates is effectively a a company that um, was set up, um, a big data company with regards to um, uh, the world of financial markets, and it, it, one, one of the biggest, uh, well, the big, the big role that it had was to do the data science and the investigation into the manipulation of global financial markets by all of the big banks in regards to LIBOR fixing and in the foreign exchange market from the. Uh, manipulation of the 4 p.m. fix um, and some other instances of um, naughty behavior by the banks uh, via the use of technology. So, yeah, we did all of the data analysis and science and collection behind that. It's probably the biggest data science project as yet conducted in the world ever. Um, And, you know, it it, it was a big one and, and it was quite revealing just to see how how much well the conclusion that you come come to having having been involved in that process on one level or another is that anybody who thinks that um banks make money because they're smart or intelligent it is as naive as it gets go on <laughs> um well i mean you know uh, the uh, a lot of money is made through the process of of processes that are not legal um and you know that you know banks have been fined, I believe, and I, I should have checked this before 
I came on, sorry, but I believe since 2008 that the big banks and, you know, we're talking Morgan, JP Morgan, Goldman, Merrill's, UBS, all, all the usual suspects have been fined $385 billion since 2010, actually. So in nine years for criminal behavior, market manipulation, um, unethical practices, unsavory behavior, and all sorts of other nasty stuff. And, you know, $385 billion in fines levied against a handful of banks um, says everything you need to know about the ethical uh, positioning of major banks and whether or not they've changed since 2010. So I think I know what the answer to this question is going to be, but I'll, I'll, I'll set it lumbering over the horizon slowly like a Theresa May battle tank anyway. Um, would you, knowing what you know now, would you ever buy shares in a traditional bank? Uh, that, oh, crikey. So I, I was going to say that's another bloody good question, but I've said that so many times. Um, I think I, I, I don't think I would buy shares in, in a bank now. Uh, regardless of anything that I've been involved in by looking inside what banks are up to. I, I, just, I think banking as we know it is a is a broken model on many levels because I think that, um, you know, the death knell for banking was when Goldman Sachs went uh, public in the late 90s because until that point, you know, it was perfectly acceptable for a group of guys to get around, use their own money and speculate in financial markets. And if they won, they, 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 made, they were rich. And if they lost, it was their own money. Um, you know, when they went public, it was just really a red flag to say, right, we're still going to speculate and take risks. But this time, if we make loads of money, we're all going to be rich. And if we lose money, you're all going to pay for it. And, um, you know, I think the model is is broken. I think banking of the future will be very much that banks will have to undertake activities uh, and charge a set fee for them. Um, and the glory days are over. I mean, you know, you've only got to look at Deutsche Bank at the moment to understand, I mean, how does a bank make money now? I mean, it, it can't borrow and lend due to the, the nonsense in the yield curve, particularly like Deutsche Bank. It can't speculate because all speculators are evil. Um, it's got to pay 6 to 10% of its annual revenue in, uh, uh, in satisfying compliance and regulation costs. Um, and it's got to fend off billions of dollars of lawsuits every year. I mean, can you explain to me in that business model where banks are actually going to be able to make any money going forward? Because I can't see it. This recalls to me, um, well, there's a, three, three things. There's the, the moment that, that I, I sort of sniffed the wind and realized that the game, the game was changing, if that isn't conflating enough mixed metaphors. Um, it was when I was working at Merrill Lynch in the late 90s, and it was when the market cap, market capitalization of Charles Schwab overtook the market cap of Merrill Lynch. And I was, I probably left Merrill Lynch within about voluntarily within about a year of that happening. Cause it, it seemed that if, if a full service house with 13,000 stockbrokers in the States alone, um, was suddenly worth less than a, a discount, an online discount broker, then the game had changed. And then following quickly after that, there were two quotes I came across around 2000. One is attributed to Bill Gates, and the other is a quote from who, whoever was then the CEO at Deutsche Bank. The quote that's attributed to Bill Gates is, banking is necessary, but banks aren't. And the quote that relates to the CEO of Deutsche was when he said, what keeps me awake at night is not our traditional competitors. It is the near banks and non-banks. And if that was the case 20 years ago, it's even more the case today, surely. 
Yeah, you know, very much so. Um, you know, I mean, it, it, it's hugely concerning. And I, th I think it's all best summed up. And, you know, this is the irony of it for me. You know, one of the first films I ever watched about, about this world was uh, Wall Street, the movie Wall Street <laughs> in 1989. And, um, and you know, th there is a, a fantastic speech in that, which I believe is used at Harvard, actually, for and several other universities. Is that, is that the Teldar paper speech? It's the Teldar paper speech, the greed is good speech. But, but yeah. you know... If you if you listen to the whole speech, I think, you know, you find answers to the questions about the current banking situation. And that is when he says, you know, there are X, you know, hundreds of senior employees each earning over X hundred thousand dollars a year. And I've analyzed these guys and I still can't work out what they do, um, you know, and, and the fact that, you, you, you know, senior banking is a job where you are guaranteed an, an awful amount of money for having no responsibility for anything whatsoever that goes on underneath you, because that's the other thing I learned from my involvement in the analysis of the banks and their naughty behavior is that there is no line management. There is no responsibility. If you lose money, you get paid. If you make money, you get paid. You know, and really what Gecko was saying in that speech in, in, uh, in, in 1989 was that that management has no accountability anymore. It's not their money at risk. And how is that the acceptable face? Well, that is not capitalism. And, and that's the other thing that concerns me at the moment is if the financial markets break down dramatically, then it's going to be blamed on capitalism, when in fact, what it should be blamed on is the fact that we no longer have capitalism. We have a, a sort of I wouldn't even say a watered down version of capitalism. What we have at the moment is out and out socialism, whereby, you know, a bad job gets rewarded. Um, you know, central banks and, and, and agencies and authorities support the market and fix prices. That's not capitalism. And what Gecko was alluding to, which is now exactly 30 years ago since that film came out, is the fact that, you know, America has become a second rate power because it, it no longer follows the principles which the country was built on. And, and that is hugely concerning. And, and that answers everything I think you need to know about the banking sector. Have you seen Wall Street and Money Never Sleeps and the speech that's in there? Yes, I have. And it's it's very, very frightening uh, to, to because I paid so much attention to the first speech. And obviously the second speech alludes to the fact that <clears throat> along came a sort of, you know, debt related crash. And yes, governments and central banks have piled in, printed money, held everything together for 10 years, and then we had the big one. <laughs> yes, it's it's so, like, almost predicting what's going to happen. It's like they, they are great speeches if you pick them apart and you know what you're looking for, absolutely. Yeah, and it, what, 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 what never ceases to amaze me is that, you know, who wrote these speeches for a film and, and who came up with these, what, what will truly be looked back on as, as great moments in financial history that some sort of, you know, screenwriter actually wrote. Um, you know, and, and, and they're great speeches and, and they, they tell you a lot about where we're at now. My only other major concern about markets or is the fact that, you know, we, 2008 really, we, we learned that banks were too big to fail. You know, are we now in a situation where the whole system is too big to fail? And the risk that that would pose for financial markets would be effectively the Japanification of Europe and America so that basically nothing moves for the next 30 years and the central banks buy all bonds, all equities, all property and anything else that you clean out your back of your wardrobe, they'll probably buy that off you as well. 
Um, and that that concerns me because that that then ends the arena in which one can ply one's trade. If that was the worst that happened, though, that that wouldn't be. I mean, it would be bad, but it wouldn't wouldn't be terrible. You'd have a a, a period of deflation. You'd have a period where the, the central banks are just constantly supporting every asset class. But yeah. there could be a worse scenario than that, where the system actually completely just folds and needs needs to be restarted, which is pretty much what we faced in 2008. A complete run on the banks. Banks are bankrupt. You know, let them fail and then start again, which is what a lot of people thought should have happened at the time. And we've been in much better shape um, further along. At the moment, all that's happened is it's just been, to use that expression that's been used a million times, the can has been kicked into the long grass or down the road or wherever. Yeah, very much so. But what's worrying is the fact that you know, has it actually, has the, maybe the can hasn't been kicked down the road. Maybe the road never existed. You know, my, my major concern here is that in 2008, um, we found out that the system doesn't work. Okay. And it still doesn't work. And rather than, ex, you know, if, if, you, if you're doing something and it goes wrong, there is a price to pay. And we haven't pride, uh, pride, uh, paid the price. And we haven't accepted that the system no longer works, you know. And I think coming into 2008, the, the, the world was something like 70 trillion in debt. The world is now 250 trillion in debt. Um, the system, the, the whole system of Western economics does not work anymore. And there has to be a price to pay for that. And if there isn't a price to pay for it, and, and central banks and authorities want to protect us from, from an eventuality that may come about as a result of that, then it's going to teach a whole new generation of people that in life there is no pain associated with anything and that no one could possibly be allowed to accept pain. And if you teach a human being that, then we're getting all deep and meaningful here. Um, then you're starting to corrupt the whole premise of the human being. So, you know, this is really important stuff. And I, I honestly believe that, you know, um, there, there are some worries out there. There really are. Yeah. And what would you do to protect yourself? What, what's, what would be your strategy? I think, well, you'd have to pack up trading and investing in financial markets because I don't think they'll exist necessarily or certainly hardly to a point. I mean, you know, if central banks are going to buy equities, does that mean that everybody <clears throat> sets up a company, okay, that, that loses money, okay, uh, and then they'll sell their shares to the government for a huge profit? And walk? I mean, you know, the whole model of business is broken at that point. It means that the equity, the price of an equity is not related to the success of a company. It's it's related to whether the government are buying it or not. So the whole system is broken down at that point. Um, I certainly would be in a situation where I didn't understand what was going on. And therefore, if, if I don't understand something, I won't be involved in it. And I think at that point, I would just have to sort of go off and live on, on, in a, in a, on a beach somewhere and, and just accept the fact that I saw the best of it. <clears throat> I don't understand what's going on anymore. Um, but what I do know is that on a much more important level than financial markets, on a human level, we're getting into dangerous territory here. There's a quote from Woody Allen that has some bearing here. Um, more than any other time in history, mankind faces a crossroads. One path leads to despair and utter hopelessness, the other to total extinction. Let us pray we have the wisdom to choose correctly. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think that... Um, I think he raises a very good point. And, um, 
you know, the, an important, you know, you, you're talking about sort of psychology here and, and, and humans and, and what they were designed for. And, you know, um, I think one thing uh, that um, the history of cognitive behavioral therapy and, and other psychological theories have taught us is that um, the only time you ever avoid pain is when you accept it. You know, if you fight pain um, or if you fight psychological pain in particular, or if you fight a system which does not represent reality, it will never go away until you accept it. And, you know, what's what we're seeing in financial markets at the moment is people will not accept reality. And that does not mean that reality will go away. When you say reality, you mean the reality of what's wrong with the system or or reality in a, in a sort of bigger sense of everything? Well, I mean, you know, you, you could start off by saying in a bigger sense of everything and the financial markets is just a representative of everything in terms of how it prices everything. And, um, you know, the, the, the fact is that if you're going to have a system where um, the world is going to basically uh, go exponential on debt, um, exponential on the number of people on the planet at the same time. I mean, you know, the, the, the thing, if I'm ever doing any teaching, one thing I often say to students is very simply this, you know, imagine if, a, if an alien landed on this planet and they said, right, what's going on on this planet? And you said, well, the first thing is we're destroying it, okay? Um, and, and really, when push comes to shove, the way we're destroying it is through the constant pursuit of economic growth. And so the, you tell the alien that, you know, more than ever, the pursuit of economic growth is really important. Um, you tell the alien that, you know, there were three billion people on the planet in 1950 and, and we're, we're hoping and expecting 10 billion on, on the planet 100 years later uh, that, that we're dedicating trillions of dollars to the research of keeping people alive a lot. I mean, the alien would probably get on a spacecraft and just go back to wherever he came from and just explain that he's just been somewhere where he's just heard total insanity <laughs> and the inability of humans to accept the position that we're currently in can only end badly until we accept the fact that there are problems out there and they're not terminal problems i'm not this is not being a doom and gloom merchant but it is the acceptance of some of the problems that exist and one of them is that you know if we want equality across the planet and we want everybody to have to live at the same living standards then someone's got to pay that bill. We can't pay the bill. So the way we're doing it is through debt. So that can't happen. Secondly, that we cannot inflate the size of the planet. You know, you can't get 100 people in a mini um, as much as you might try. There is a limit to the amount of people that you can get on the planet. And we may have to put limits in place. And these are the kinds of things that we need to accept and to need to push forward to. And also that you know, the the uh, maybe there is a slightly better way to measure progress than purely economic growth. You know, it could be quality of life and happiness and various other things that could be added into the mix other than this eternal pursuit of economic growth at all costs, which is obviously part of the reason that we're seeing, you know, detrimental effects on the planet. You revolve quite a bit in education. Um yeah, we we were recently you you recently arranged a sort of private forum where we had a, a about a half a dozen of us discussing it sort of burning issues of the time and we 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 we're going through very similar ground uh, on the recording now. Uh, what would you say about the state of the higher education system in this country? Um, very similar to the state of the financial markets, which is you know it has a huge problem of and nobody is accepting or or offering solutions to that to that problem and. Um, 
you know, to, very briefly, I mean, the description of what's going on is that obviously uh, students are getting into a lot of debt in order to obtain qualifications. So therefore, it is important for them that those qualifications lead to gainful employment. Um, they're paying more money than ever for their education. The chances of getting gainful employment at the end of it have reduced significantly. Um, the debts they are building up is becoming subprime, particularly in America, where it's about one and a half trillion dollars of student debt, which I think half of that is now classified as subprime, i.e. those students can't even get a job in McDonald's. Then you look at what they're actually being taught in the universities, and it's absolute rubbish. Um, and not only is it absolute rubbish, you know, and outdated, it's not fit for purpose. You've got grade inflation, which means that universities are just giving. I mean, if someone comes to you and they pay for your service, you have to, well, the way the universities are looking at it is, right, this student's come along, he's spending £27,000 for three years to study at my university. I have to give him a first or a 2-1. I can't fail him. So therefore, everybody's getting a, a top class degree. So therefore, the ability to measure people's competence or talents becomes, it doesn't exist anymore. Um, you know, degrees are ubiquitous, which means the value of anything that's in massive supply goes down. So therefore, a graduate with a 2-1 in economics is about as useful as a, you know, as a chocolate teapot, to be honest with you. And already employers are saying, look, you know, tell me another way to assess the capability of a student because everyone's got a degree and that and that doesn't cut it. The, um, I honestly believe that the blame for that whole thing can be laid completely and squarely at the feet of Tony Blair, who basically said, you know, everyone should go to university. And um, basically at that point, he just he destroyed the whole validity of going to university because it's a worthless piece of paper that students are having to get into debt for. And the universities are taking their money, even though they know they haven't got a chance of doing anything with it. So you've got ethical issues there as well. I believe the current UK university system that I think there are something like 150 universities in the country now, I would say six of them are probably very, very good. And the rest should be burned down because they are useless. I was surprised at a stat that you, you, you cited the other, the other day, and it was in relation to the number of universities that are actually closing down. Yeah, well, it, it wasn't so much uh, that they're closing down. It was that, you know, in the last six months, um, one or two London universities have gone bankrupt, um, a bit like Jamie Oliver's restaurant chain today, um, and have been promptly bailed out by the government on the, on the QT. It um, doesn't take much Googling to, to find out what's going on. Uh, but I think like Westminster University and um, East, East London or something, you know, I, I can't keep up. I mean, you've got Ipswich University now, haven't you? I mean, you know, uh, so, yeah, I mean, one or two of them have, have gone have gone boobs up. And I think that um, you're going to see an awful lot more. I, I, I would think in five years time, if there are more than 30 operating universities in the country, um, it will be a miracle. Um, I, I, you know, we lead the way in Ox, Oxbridge and Imperial and, and some of these other fantastic engineering, um, you know, medicine, fantastic. But, you know, the humanities and et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it's a joke. And I, I expect that the majority of UK universities will have to change tact dramatically if they're going to survive in the next few years. I was talking to a friend of mine who works for a for a major bank who had just recruited a graduate who had fantastic results. And that 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 graduate was asked to write a report on, I can't remember what it was, it was something like, you know, the Fed and the recent Fed decision and what the markets would do and et cetera. And, and apparently 
that was that was too much. That was beyond the capability of this graduate because, and I just thought it was like kind of programming, you know, in economics where you're you programmed with your models and stuff and you don't actually really look at the nuts and bolts of, of how the markets work. But it, it sounds like it's also a problem of the state of the degrees that people are getting. And no wonder they, they can't find employment if, if people are saying, well, what's the point of employing these people if they, they can't even write a basic report from, from their own common sense about what might happen next in the markets? I, you know, I, I could really go into one here and I won't because... Um, oh, no, go into one. There's <laughs> no reason why you, why well, you part shouldn't. Of the reason I, part of the reason I won't is because I'm, I, I feel like people will, will think I'm sort of embellishing the stories. I mean, it's, it's so bad... Uh, that it's beyond comprehension of most people unless you're inside the system, which I currently am, to see what's going on. Uh, and what's effectively going on is that, you know, um, you know, I deal with master's level students who can't spell their own name. Um, and no, then come this, on, come on, seriously. No, I'm, I'm absolutely serious. I mean, you know, they, they cannot string a coherent sentence together and they are master's level students They've never heard of the 29 crash. This is master students in finance and risk management who have never heard of the 29 crash, the 73 oil crisis, the ERM I taught them about three or four weeks ago. They'd never even heard of it. They what? Didn't know. Uh, that's just the tip of the iceberg. So, you know, I'm currently marking 28 um, assignments and... Um, you know the standard is 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 pretty dreadful. Let's let's leave it at that. To the extent that um, it's no wonder that employers are are screaming about the fact that you know they're getting someone with a first class honors degree and a a uh, you know a very good master's degree in finance and then don't know what two plus two is. And that that does not surprise me in in the slightest. I mean another hugely worrying concern is the fact that. Um, you know, the, the mental health issues amongst students at universities is skyrocketing. Another thing we see firsthand. Really? Um, what, what, yeah. what causes that, Chris? What do you think? It's really sad. I mean, I think a lot of it is, is to do with, um, well, personally, I think a lot of it is to do with technology um, and the constant use of um, smartphones and, and always being on technology and the pressures that they have to deal with. Now, you know, you, you guys know me and I've always not, I've not been, I've always been reasonably cynical and, and not the most sort of softly, softly social worker type that you might come across. And even I have to admit that the, that the younger generation have pressures on them. I believe that that a that, that hundred years ago, young people who may have to go off and die in a war didn't have. And, you know, that was what I'd call clean pain back then. I mean, I think now it's dirty pain. It's sort of knowing that competition means you're unlikely to get a job. Um, you know, the fact that everyone's got equal opportunities, the fact that everybody um, has got the same knowledge, the fact that, you know, um, peer pressure and, and peer observation, et cetera. I mean, there, is, there are so many different things, but also because we've brought them up quite soft as well. And, you know, so therefore, as soon as they get put under any pressure, they crumble. Um, the whole lot put together means, I think, that currently in the UK university system, there's the more than 20% of the entire population of the university system is suffering from mental health issues. What about the students? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a good one, Tim. Uh, about the same, um, slightly higher on the former, I'd say probably a 30% on the staff. 
Um, no, but it, it's a real it's a real concern. It's a real problem. Um, but I do think you know education uh, will change shape in the next five or ten years, and the idea that people are going to get to 18 and go off to university and learn for three years and then go off to work will change to the point where everybody will go off to work at 18 and people will dip into the educational process as they progress through their career um, with modules online and keeping up with things as they progress and as things change. One of the amazing things about the internet is that you can actually learn just about anything and apply yourself and, and, and so the model really has to change, doesn't it? Because if you've got any sense, you would. why would you spend however many thousands it costs to do a full degree course when you could possibly just delay it a few years if that's what you really want to do and just chuck that money into a business, you know, yeah. write an app or, or do something like that with your own? Absolutely. The whole model's changed. I mean, you know, I had a student this week who was, he's just finished a foundation year and he's about to embark on a three-year degree. Um, and I talked him out of it. And I said to him, you're going to spend £27,000 plus the same again on living in London for three years. How about for the total cost of a thousand quid, I give you um, a bunch of courses to take online that will put you ahead of anyone who does this degree. uh, So you can save yourself 50,000 quid. And in a year's time, you'll be better qualified than anybody coming out of this university. And, you know, an example would be you know, there are fantastic places that you can go and learn Python programming online for a year for 12 months for £110. Yes. You know, yes. Um, you know. look, anyone who's ever been very successful, they educate themselves. Smart people educate themselves. That's the rest, absolutely right. The rest of us get taught. You know how it is. What's really funny is that back in, let's say around the time of the immediate aftermath of the referendum, or the Brexit referendum, um, I was reading books by people like Douglas Carswell, Daniel Hannan, uh, and, and Dominic Frisby. And there was a real sense of optimism about, you know, exploiting new technology, exploiting the web for for all of these, you know, for all of these good things to have a, like a sort of phase change in the, the efficiency of education and everything else and have like sort of localized voting, all kinds of things, you know, and it was, there was a real sense of optimism and it slowly fizzled out as we've had this sort of rolling uh, democratic crisis and it it now it feels as if that the potential's still there but it, it's like one of those things like the system has shifted from being stable to unstable equilibrium and now only any any extra weight on the branch will cause the branch to completely snap and we might yet end up with what we originally voted for for example three years ago but it's taken an enormous it's wasted we've wasted three years in trying to get there. So I'm actually a little bit more confident, a little bit more optimistic now than I was over the course of that last three-year period when everything just drifted. Because I just sense that, yes, everyone's ragingly angry, but we might actually get to a proper change in the environment, a a proper reset, if you like, that might make all these things happen now. No, I I, I, I totally agree with you. Um, I and I, and I really sense more than ever in the last two months that something is brewing here um, and that we are going to get real change. Um, the problem with the only problem which you sort of eloquently described there is the process of the waste of time and money over the last three years. And it was a, a, a three year period, which I think was fundamentally important for governments to be focusing on other issues that are also equally important in society. Um, whereas, you know, everyone's focus has been totally on Brexit 
um, and a lot of other issues that are very poignant because things are really starting to change at quite a rapid pace uh, in society. And we've focused on one little issue and we're, we're back to where we started three years ago. And there's a lot happened since then in terms of other areas of life. And that concerns me that governments have taken their eye off the ball on other issues that are really important as well. But, you know, I think we started off on this chat by talking about the fact that you know, radical change is on its way. And, I, you know, I don't think anybody would um, uh, would argue with the fact that the political system in a year's time could look dramatically different to what it looks like today. Or we might have one. We might actually have a political system. You're absolutely right. Or we might have that huge outdoor swimming pool on the banks of the Thames where the Houses of Parliament once stood and where so many of us signed a petition to install. <laughs> So, Chris, who do you look up to? Who are your heroes um, in financial markets and otherwise? Yeah. That's a very that's a, a, a super question. In financial markets, for me, uh, would be uh, Richard Dennis, who was the um, uh, the first person to really sort of take trend following um, and and teach it to one or two other people, and and really sort of make a lot of money out of it. Um, and, and try a different approach to, to trading markets. Uh, and then a later example of someone that I've watched for 15 years running a system through thick and thin and, and through some pretty chunky drawdowns, but sticking to his system rigidly is um, a guy called Paul Mulvaney, who is a, a fund manager in London. Um, he's a real hero to me because he is someone who's got a system, he knows what he's doing, and he's never, ever veered from that system. And having that level of discipline and control um, is is amazing. So you know, in, in in terms of you know, I've met a lot of people along the way who who have been you know very interesting. But those guys stand out. And then in in other areas of life, um, oh god, where do you start? You know, I mean, there are there are there are people. You know, I think that generally people who have who have stood up to to do things in in a different way have always appealed to me. Um, and the thing I always find about geniuses and people we look back on fondly are that first they were sort of laughed at, then they were sort like you know, then they were sort of accepted, and then they were worshipped. And you know, you can look at things like music with like Elvis and the Beatles, and you can look at things like politics with Nigel Farage, and you can look at other areas of life as well where people have come along and they've really changed things up and really done things differently, despite you know what they've had to put up with from from the general public um, and really stuck to what they do. And I find those people to be, you know, particularly heroic. There's a great line about the development of science, which is that science science evolves one funeral at a time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, very, very true. And, and probably the same can be said about music as well. You know, um, uh, so, so many people sort of, you know, come and gone, so many great geniuses, but, um, you know, when, when, when you look back, I mean, it, it really is, you know, amazing how anyone who really ends up being a hero was actually laughed at in any walk of life when they started off. And, and I think that's always, you know, that should give confidence to people that to, to stick to what they believe in, despite what other people might think. But that, pr that probably accounts for the difficulties of being a contrarian investor, because very few people can can tolerate being laughed at, being on the on the fringe of the mob as opposed to being in the centre of the crowd. Yeah, absolutely, and and that relates, you know, purely to human behaviour and the and the human need. You know, it's it's not a criticism of humans to want to be part of the crowd because that's what you know we are. 
gregarious sort of pack animals in many ways. And, you know, we do like to feel part of something. So it does take a certain sort of brain. Maybe it's stupidity. Maybe it's, you know, brain damage. Maybe it's courage to, to stand on the edges of that group and to do things in a different way. Absolutely. But if, you, but if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much room. If you're not living on the edge, you're taking up. <laughs> I think I once had a hat with that written on the front of it. Um, <laughs> And I've done my fair share of living on the edge, and I'm perfectly happy to sort of come in a bit from the edge at the moment uh, as I get well, older. <laughs> well, we're glad you're still here to tell the tale, of course. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, well, let's let's go to media picks then. So, um, so Tim, what have you got for us this week? Okay, the what the one I've got. It, I, I was brought up uh, as a kid in the seventies and eighties. I was brought up with um, the documentary uh, series, The World at War. Um, oh, so right. Sun, Sunday afternoons after lunch fairly depressing at the best of times in the 70s and 80s and and the thing that really sent it over the edge of depressingness was basically that series it's it, i'm not i'm not sort of casting aspersions it was a terrific documentary series and up until the last few weeks i consider it the best documentary series particularly in relation to warfare that i've ever seen and it's very powerful very evocative very moving uh laurence olivier does the uh the voiceover the narration and I think it's a Granada production, but it's just it's just magnificent. And then about a week ago, last couple of weeks, I've been watching The Vietnam War by Ken Burns yeah. and any anybody or Ken Burns and Lynn Novick are the two are the two directors. Anybody that knows Ken Burns knows that or anybody that's familiar with the name Ken Burns knows that he you know he gives good doc. And The Vietnam War is um, is just shattering to watch. End of story. Wow. Wow, what, where, where did you see that? Where did you? Catch I watched. It? I saw it on Netflix. On Netflix. Oh right. Okay. I'm, so it is. A, I mean, a, a warning is that it's it's not exactly a light light. It's not exactly a rom com. It is not right. exactly light. You know, light light family viewing. It's, some bits of it are truly harrowing, but it's also a bit of a. It, it's it's like the Bataan Death March. It's not going to be over quickly. It's ten parts. It lasts eighteen hours, which is longer than the uh, Holocaust documentary Shoah, for example. So. This is, you know, you need to stagger the watching process. But I don't think I've ever seen anything that's moving in my entire life. Wow. Wow. Gosh, that, that's, uh, yeah, great, great recommendation. We'll have to check that out. So, Chris, what, what about you? What, do, what, do you? what have you got for us? In terms of media, um, <clears throat> yeah, it's, it's probably a bit, a bit boring for some, but, I mean, I, due to my, um, some of my teaching, I've recently had to endure watching uh, the film, the movie, The Big Short, um, nine times in two weeks. <laughs> Um, and having already seen it a handful of times before that, I, I, I personally felt my students could watch it and I could get on with doing some marking or, or, or something else. But I found myself more glued to the edge of my seat for every single one of those viewings. Do you get to freeze frame? Is it Margot Robbie? Do you get to freeze frame those moments when she's in the in the bar? No, I, I already understand what I already understand what CDOs are, Tim. So I skipped. Oh, okay. Okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> Good point. Um, no, and uh, you know. For me, I think each time I watch that film, it just gets more and more poignant. And I would argue it's probably one of the greatest films I've ever seen. Just, you know, it happens to be about financial markets. But, you know, to brutally expose something for what it is, you know, if anyone wanted to know about the true, what a true genius is, like uh, Dr. Michael Berry in that film, who stood up to the system. He went to Goldman Sachs. He had the piss taken out of him by so-called experts at Goldman Sachs. He was right. They were what they are fucking stupid have you seen inside job the documentary inside job which is narrated by matt damon 
I don't think I have. No. Oh, you're in for a treat. It's all about the crisis and the inside. It's just fantastic. It's absolutely fantastic. It's basically the equivalent of The Big Short, but done documentary style and narrated by Matt Damon. You've got to check it out. I mean, it's, it's sort of what amazed me about The Big Short and why it's such a great recommendation is when I watched it, I thought, yeah, I really love this, but I was... I wouldn't have thought that the general public would like it so much, but I had so many people saying to me, oh, I watched a big short about the financial crisis. I didn't know, you know, I didn't know all this stuff had happened. It was fantastic. I was like, wow, you know, that was that was great. I thought some of the details, obviously for the sake of of, uh, of a narrative, fil- narrative film that they, they had to compromise on, which is understandable, but yeah. when, you, when you watch Inside Job, it gives you all the facts, all the figures, everything that was all the plays that were going on at the time all the moving parts and it it really just exposes it it's just it's just a fantastic documentary definitely so you, watch that yeah definitely check it out it's really really good um very hard hitting and uh, they don't pull any punches with it that uh, <laughs> let's I say but uh, yeah so i'm sure you'll enjoy that my my i mean that could be my recommendation but actually i've said that before so um i'm going to pick a Another YouTube video, which uh, the last one was The Last Humans, which I think you've now seen, haven't you, Tim? You've seen it's, that now. It's outstanding. It's very, very good. It's very, very good, isn't it? I, I just thought, wow, you've, you've got to see it, The Last Humans. Uh, so if you haven't seen that, that was a pick from last time. Um, but for this week, um, knowing that Tim's a bit of a horror fan, I found a really fantastic little short called The Dollmaker. Oh, which, that sounds good. Yeah, it's it's only I think it's only about sort of ten or twelve minutes long, but it it just hit the nail right on the head. Really fantastic little short. Um, so yeah, really good little horror short. I'll put a link to that, and uh, and I hope you enjoy it. All that leaves me to say is uh, thanks everyone for listening. Thank you so much, Chris, for coming on the show. If somebody wanted to get in contact with you, Chris, what would be the best way of doing it? Um, they could um, email is always good. Um, you know, I'm happy to put my uh, to give you guys my email address if you want to stick that on the website. Or, or yeah, yeah, we can put that in the show notes. Are you on Twitter? Do you do the Twitter sphere? Uh, I'm, I'm not, to be You're fair. Not? No, uh, that's now. I interestingly, just to jump back to what you were saying earlier, we I hadn't seen you in a while, and it was great to meet up the other day. And you no longer have a smartphone, do you? I don't. No, I'm having a six month sabbatical from from my smartphone. Um, I gave it up in January, and I get it back on the first of July, which is my birthday. And I said, I'm going to go six months without a smartphone. Um, I almost went to Smartphone Addicts Anonymous after about two months, but I managed to pull myself through it. And how, <laughs> how, does, that, how does it feel? It must feel great. Uh, yeah, no, it's good. I've got more energy and um, I'm, in the, I'm in the present moment. You know, if I'm on a train journey, I look out the window and, and watch what's going on. I don't have my head buried in my phone all day, every day. The average uh, adult in this country checks their phone 100 times a day. Wow. I mean, I we, we, we've got a really amazing, great fan of the show, and his name's, um, wait, his handle on Twitter is Millionaire Mentor, and his name's David Harrison, and he's obviously a millionaire mentor. All the stuff he's got is just great from Twitter. And one of the things, I, I think he would really approve of that, because part of what he says is like, you know, educate yourself and invest in yourself. And I don't think he's got a TV, and I think he just listens, you know, to podcasts to try and educate himself, which I think is really clever. And I, I like the idea of not having a smartphone. Having two kids, it's really hard to to kind of take them away from it. But 
I have explained that the, like Steve Jobs wouldn't let his kids have a smartphone. I mean, that says it all, doesn't it, really? Yeah. What an idiot. What a complete idiot. <laughs> <laughs> Lo- loser. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Less said about Steve Jobs, the better when I'm around. Right, okay. Well, well. on that note, we better end the show. <laughs> Look, Chris, it's been absolutely fantastic having you on the show. We really, really enjoyed it. And, um, You've been it's... listening to the State of the Markets podcast, sponsored by Apple. Yeah. <laughs> would you come back on the show absolutely I'd, I'd be delighted to come back on and as tim said i think we could talk uh, about several things a lot longer and i'd be over the moon to do that whenever you want i'm there Lovely. we'll be Thank sponsored you, by huawei by then yeah <laughs> controlled by them not sponsored by them Tim. <laughs> brilliant oh the lights has gone dead who, what's happened who, who funds you racist <laughs> <laughs> brilliant well look thanks once again to everybody who listens to the show we really do appreciate your support and uh, thanks again to Chris and uh, and thanks Tim and we will catch you next time so have a fantastic couple of weeks and goodbye for now bye 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 all this podcast is for entertainment purposes only please do your own research or contact a professional advisor 